Some places aren't safe, have never been safe. Some would say they are cursed. Such is the case with St. Albans Sanatorium in Virginia. With its complicated and horrific past, it sits now as a relic of proof that even the cursed still survive. I'm about to take you to a place of horrors where madness and mayhem roam the halls. This is a story you don't want to miss. I'm Vanessa K. Eccles, and this is Fabled. The hall stretched wide and ominous before me. My toes crept ever so closely to the edge of the doorway a tiny linear break in the wood flooring that served as a warning. Do not cross the line. The sound of footsteps spooked me. I closed the door and retreated to my bed, the small metal frame clanking on the wall, as it always did, leaving a dark gray mark on the white plaster. My eyes caught a shadow in the window. Being on the second story, I often got to see birds in flight. I dreamed of their wings, their ability to roam the earth, wherever they wanted, wild and wonderful. An orderly opened the door. It creaked when she pushed, sending a jolt of fear down my spine. I hated the sound of the door opening. Nothing good ever came of it. Miss Josephine, you have a visitor. The orderly said as she tucked a strand of hair into her low bun and readjusted her white cap. I never have visitors. Come along, she said, shooing me toward the bathroom. She planted me in front of the small mirror. Marks where the glue was bleeding through speckled the edges. She gently ran the brush through my thinning blonde hair, a side effect of whatever they had me on. You want to look presentable before seeing your husband, don't you? My breath caught in the back of my throat. A clog of emotions struggled to break free. Edward hadn't visited in years, and I couldn't imagine why he'd be here. She turned me around and pinched my cheeks. There, now you look a little better. She checked my gown to make sure it was secure, and then led me down the long, dark corridor until we met the end past where I knew we were allowed to roam. Light flooded the room when she pushed through the double doors. I glanced over my shoulder, looking back at the dark gloom that was only steps away. But here, St. Albans felt different. This is what the public sees, a welcoming place meant to heal and serve your loved ones. I laughed to myself, and she turned to make sure I wasn't starting to act out. No one who loves you puts you away, strips you of your freedom. For me, this place is an excuse to kill someone without getting your hands dirty, to be rid of them, despite them having never done anything wrong. There's only hate in that. I saw him before he saw me. We sat alone at a round table, 
glancing outside toward the river. He looked older than the last time I'd seen him, hair slightly graying at the temples, and he'd gained a few pounds, which made him look more mature and handsome. My heart hurt just seeing him. Mr. Campbell, here she is, the orderly said with a warm smile. She was kind, as kind as they come here, but I didn't trust her or anyone anymore. The one person I loved the most in this world had betrayed me, and no matter how people seemed, I'd never mistake their kindness to be authentic. No one cared for the crazy. Edward's eyes met mine, so blue, blue like the ocean, I'd told him on our honeymoon, as he held me in his arms and kissed the top of my head. Life had been so good, so generous in those years. I shook the thought away, that life is dead. Gosh, Josephine, he said, standing up and awkwardly extending his hand to me. Shake my hand? That's what we've come to now, I thought, but didn't say anything or move to greet him. He swallowed and briefly stuck his hand into his pocket, then sat. Please, he motioned for me to do the same. The cold metal of the chair pricked the back of my legs. The scene felt surreal, as if memories and dreams had collided to fabricate this moment. My head began to pound and my vision slightly blurred. Are you alright? He asked, brows knitted together as if he cared. He did it. When I didn't answer, he continued, Listen, it's been a while and the doctors tell me that you aren't getting better that you still haven't let go of it. He paused. The way he said it made me cringe. How could he say that, like I could ever let go? He shifted in his seat, then added, I need to move on, Joe. I took a new job out of state, and I've met someone. His icy eyes met mine again. He searched me for any glimmer of emotion, and though I felt a surge of anger and sadness swirl within me, I was trapped. Me, the true Josephine, had been trapped in this horrible body for years. All that I was, that I am, locked away because of the cocktail of medication meant to cure me. The person inside me crumbled. I turned toward the window and I could see myself, who I knew myself to be, dressed in my Sunday best in the garden falling to my knees at his words. He had killed me in every way but one. Yet. I think it's best if I leave this chapter behind. I think it's best for you too, he said. How could he say such a thing? I never had the opportunity to grieve and to move past it. He reached for my hand. The warmth of it made me shiver. He still had such great power over me. A blush reached my cheeks, and I cursed myself for it. A part of me will always love you, Joe. I hope you know that. Please don't forget me, he said, and pulled my hand to his lips, kissing the top of it gently, his mouth leaving a cold, wet print on my hand. I pulled away and ran my fingers along the skin where his lips were on my hand. He sniffled once and stood up. Before he walked away, he whispered, Get rid of it. Move on, Joe, I beg you. He wiped his eyes, but he wasn't crying. 
Maybe he'd ran out of tears like I had. Maybe he'd only felt like crying. I didn't care. I couldn't care. Too much had happened. Too many years. Too much pain. As he walked away, I studied him. The way he walked. The way he'd always favored his right leg because of a childhood injury. His shoulders were always a little hunched in a way that I once loved. Because he seemed humble. Kind. He never was one to take advantage or to intentionally hurt someone. The orderly fetched me and led me back to my room. I wanted to scream, to cry, to feel, but nothing came up anymore. I knew the emotions should be there, were there somewhere, but I could no longer express them. Perhaps it was for the best. These four walls were my family, my comfort, my life. Who needed to feel when one could only be? I curled into bed, pulled the covers up to my neck, and picked at the peeling plaster. I'd made my way through the chalky layers, through the horsehair, into the wire. I plucked and plucked until it caught my nail and bent it backward, the nail bed beginning to bleed. That's when I heard her, a gentle cry from my closet. I thought of Edward's words earlier. He was moving on, planning to remarry and move away. He wanted to tuck us away like a failure. Forget we'd ever happened. Forget that we were still here, still alive and waiting for him to come to his senses and care for us again. The cry grew louder. I closed my eyes and buried my ears into the pillow, trying to drown it out. He's right. I needed to let go, move on, get out. Her sobs got louder until I thought my ears would burst if I didn't make it stop. I threw the blanket back and walked to the closet, desperate to rid myself of the agony of just hearing her cry. I turned the cold glass doorknob. My glance fell on her tiny body on a shelf in a large mason jar, floating like an angel inside. I picked her up and held her close. Shh, it's okay, my darling. We're okay. Everything's all right, I said, gently rocking her from side to side. Another orderly walked past the door. His beady, wicked eyes peeked in through the glass. He snickered at the sight of me and said loud enough that I could hear him, You're mad. Shh, I said, voice quivering as I held her close. We're all mad here. The skies are vast, clouds looming and casting shadows on the massive structures that make up St. Albans Sanatorium. It's clear to see that this is a place with more than a story. It's a place of many, many stories, tangled like wild vines and broken branches, stretching over a century. Radford, in the land where the sanatorium sits, has always been a valuable place as it's located near the New River, but it was home to some horrific events throughout history. In the summer of 1755, a group of Shawnee Indians attacked the village of Draper's Meadow, which is near the present-day site of the sanatorium. You see, 
There had been rising tensions between settlers and natives. The French and Indian War exasperated relations and violence had escalated. On that fateful day, July 30th, the Shawnees killed at least five settlers, but one family suffered tremendously. Mary Draper Ingalls watched as they ravaged through her home and smashed her sister-in-law's baby by bashing its head against the cabin wall. She also witnessed them reportedly scalp and kill her mother. She and her two sons were kidnapped and taken northwest of the New River, then down the Ohio River, traveling for a month to Lower Shawnee Town. When there, she and her sons, her sister-in-law, and her nephew were all split up and sent to other locations. She worked as a servant. But in October, she planned her escape with another woman. Their captors believed them to be harvesting berries, but the two had actually ran away. When they didn't return, the Shawnees believed wild animals had eaten the women. The two of them traveled for almost two months, and they were starving. They even reportedly drew lots, trying to decide who would eat the other, but that proved too horrific. Mary was eventually forced to leave her friend after the woman had made two attempts to kill her. Draper's Meadow was soon abandoned after that attack. The bloodshed at the massacre would taint the land and history forever. Shelley Sprouse Mead, who wrote A Repository of Souls, the history of St. Albans Sanatorium, recounts how in 1865 Union forces defeated Confederate troops in the Battle of Cloyd's Mountain, thus destroying the last connection between Tennessee and Virginia. The battle did not last long, but it was a savage one, with much of it fought hand to hand. In a little over an hour, 1,226 lives were lost. Although the Confederates had fewer casualties, it was a victory for the Union. More blood on an already haunted land. But even with its tumultuous history, there was hope when in 1892, Professor George Miles opened a private preparatory high school in hopes of raising young men to be fine and educated citizens. St. Albans was the shining star of the community and in its early years, it had no trouble keeping its 50 student capacity full. Radford was growing, having hit 5,000 in population that year because of the railroad and industry. One thing that Professor George Miles looked for in his students was exceptional athletic abilities. After all, they had a prestigious competitive reputation to keep. They were known for their sporting skills. According to Miss Mead, one of the many things that made St. Albans unique from other boarding schools was that the students were considered part of Professor George Miles' family, even sharing meals with him and his family. But the school, with all its accolades, did have one dark side to it. It's been stated that bullying was unchecked and encouraged. In a 1904 yearbook, the editor explains one such example. Quote, E. Blackburn Runyon did not return after Christmas, much to our sorrow, as it put a stop to the football games on the terrace in which he figured prominently as the football. When outside interests took Professor Miles away from St. Albans, 
The school began to fade. It seemed that no one could tend to it like he did, and attendance suffered, causing the school to close in September of 1904. Though there were no deaths reported by boys during those years, rumors say otherwise, and Professor George Miles died of liver cancer shortly thereafter in 1905. He was only in his early 40s. In 1916, the school was purchased by Dr. J.C. King with the goal of turning it into a sanatorium. During St. Albans' time of operation, treatment of mental illness was crude and what we would consider inhumane today, and many patients suffered tremendously. The Southwest Times documented one loss, quote, Miss Suzanne Jane Sayers, wife of J.B. Sayers, died Saturday night at the St. Albans Sanatorium, Radford, where she had been under treatment. Her condition had been in extremis for some days and the end not unexpected, it being realized there was no hope. Another woman who had lost her child supposedly kept it in a jar in her closet, always close, death always in the room with her. That was such a horrific thought that it inspired the fiction for this piece. With as many as thousands of people passing through St. Albans, there's a shockingly low number of recorded deaths. But the place did have a morgue. Ten deaths were found by the local historian featured on the Dead Files episode called House of Horrors. One of the many types of treatment administered at St. Albans was insulin shock therapy. Staff would inject large amounts of insulin into a patient, which would put them into a coma. It was first introduced into practice by Austrian-American psychiatrist Manfred Seckel and used in the 40s and 50s. Another common treatment is hydrotherapy, or water cure as it was called. The way it was used during this time was by inducing a crisis in the patient. People believed that the water could heal by invading any cracks or spaces within the skin that may have been tainted or sick and rid the patient of any impurities. These impurities would rise to the surface of the skin in the form of pus. This was achieved by sweating, the plunging bath, the half bath, the head bath, and other forms. The doctors would expose patients to cold water until they were purified. One of the most common treatments was electroshock therapy. It became popular in the 1940s. It was believed to improve mood and relieve patients from severe forms of depression. St. Albans even had a machine they wheeled around from room to room called Mickey Mouse. This type of therapy is still used today. In 2001, it was estimated that about 1 million people receive it every year. But perhaps nothing is more horrific than a lobotomy though. Made popular in the 40s and 50s as well, this violent treatment involved severing connections in the brain's prefrontal cortex to make patients more passive. Unfortunately, many suffered horrific consequences. It wasn't uncommon for patients to die from the procedure, while others committed suicide after. Severe brain damage was always a risk, and so were a number of other impairments, such as losing parts 
of people's personalities, self-control, and even intellect. But another sounds equally as horrific, tree pinning. It's a process of drilling a hole into the head to relieve excess pressure on the brain. This was done to people who were not behaving normally. Another thought was that the hole would release evil spirits that may have been plaguing the patient. This practice goes back as far as 12,000 years. Back then, it's believed that people kept the bored out portion of the skull as a charm to protect themselves from evil spirits. In modern times, this method is used for epidural and subdural hematomas and intracranial pressure monitoring. A lot of physical pain was inflicted by probably well-intentioned medical personnel in hopes of relieving these patients of what tormented them. With such extreme physical and mental torment within the walls of St. Albans, it should be no surprise that some consider it as the most active location on the East Coast. Many patients still haven't found rest beyond the grave. In the book, The Ghosts of St. Albans Sanatorium, Pat Bussard O'Keefe includes a list of ghosts that still roam the halls, searching, always searching, for a way to break free. The story of Jacob is one of the saddest of them. Jacob was about eight years old when it's believed that he was murdered by a staff member by the name of Donald in the 1970s. He doesn't like for people to get too close, so he's known to give you a shove if he thinks you're invading his space. He haunts Donald's room, which is just up the grand staircase and to the right. He's often been caught on EVPs. Rebecca is another of the active ghosts. She was young, in her 20s or 30s, and believed to have hung herself in what is dubbed the suicide bathroom on the third floor. The tall man is an ominous presence on the grand staircase. After hearing Amy Allen's investigation on the sanatorium on the dead files, I wonder if he is actually who she called uncle, a dominating presence that is known to attack guests by pushing and throwing them physically. Another one often seen is the tongue man, a ghost whose tongue hangs grotesquely from his mouth, causing him to look terrifying. It's believed that this is because of heavy psychiatric medication. Despite his initial appearance, he seems to be friendly and has even communicated with a member of an investigation group, according to the book, claiming that he knew the way he looked was scary, but he doesn't mean to scare people. In addition to apparitions, strange sounds are often heard throughout the buildings. People talking, laughing, screaming, crying, and banging. Paranormal researchers have seen black shadows, been pushed and thrown, and have even been put into a trance-like state, having been jumped by something paranormal. They've had to physically fight unseen things, and they've heard their names whispered by whoever haunts St. Albans, promising to kill them. One of the most unique things I've read about the place is how hallways and doors disappear, leaving guests feeling lost and disoriented, almost as if the place and its history of madness is infecting those who come through its doors. 
I'll share some more recent history that's equally as chilling after a brief promo. Hey, did you know that in the original Bloody Mary ritual, you had to walk backwards up a flight of stairs? Oh, really? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, and the purpose was to catch a glimpse of your future husband's face. Really? I wish I could find my future husband that easily. Honestly, all I really want to do now is drink a Bloody Mary. Well, how about we go make some Bloody Marys while you tell me more fun facts about Bloody Mary? Join us every week at Booze and Spirits, where we make our favorite drinks and tell each other our favorite paranormal stories. Find us under Booze and Spirits on Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, and Podbean. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Booze and Spirits. One of the saddest stories about the land where St. Albans is located is the disappearance of 18-year-old Gina Renee Hall. On a summer night in June of 1980, Gina went to a nightclub. Her car was found on a road very close to St. Albans and the New River in Radford. Blood and hair were found in her trunk, but no body. The investigation led them to a small cabin at Clater Lake where there appeared to have been an attack. It's believed it was there that Gina lost her life. Former Virginia Tech football star Stephen Epperly was charged and convicted of her murder. He was the first person in the state of Virginia to be convicted without a body, confession, or witness. Stephen had a reputation of being a smooth talker with the ladies and had been accused of sexual assault twice before Gina's murder, but he had been acquitted. He admitted that he met her in the club, convinced her to go out to the cabin, but claims the two parted ways after. But investigators believe he made his move on Gina while at the cabin, and when he wanted to go farther than she did, he killed her. Investigators also believe that he used her car to haul her body, and after disposing of it, left it near St. Albans. Epperly has been imprisoned since his conviction, but he still claims his innocence. Gina's remains have never been found. Police believe that her body was either left in the river or is buried somewhere on the property of St. Albans. After being saved from the wrecking ball in 2007, St. Albans now stands as a testament of survival despite massive amounts of tragedy. Its aged walls and broken windows whisper memories of its hardships. With crumbling plaster walls, its insides open and exposed, it's not difficult to feel the emotion in the place, even if only in photographs. It's haunting and sad, yet mesmerizing and terrifying. It's full of bright rooms and dark corridors, a complex architecture that mimics its complex past. Today, St. Albans is available for tours and events, ranging from marriages to history tours. It's become a popular haunted destination during Halloween. These events help to keep the structure sound and the doors open. The staff hopes to turn it into a museum in the future, forever keeping the history alive. But it's the dead that's very much alive there now. While researching, I realized how much of what's happened on the land has been a battle of both mind and will. From the massacre, battling of wills on who controlled the land, 
to the boys' school that hoped to shape the minds and strength of future men, to the sanatorium, hoping to heal the minds of those afflicted. People are always striving to shape and to alter. If there's anything I've learned from all of this, it's that time may heal, but it doesn't forget. Places tend to become more and more haunted with layers of past, thick and murky. St. Albans is a place of terrors. Enter at your own risk. Fabled was produced by me, Vanessa K. Eccles. Want to know more about St. Albans? See the website, fabledcollective.com, for a full list of books and sources. Many thanks to friend and patron Whitney for suggesting this topic. Also, thank you to our new patrons, Robert and Lisa, and Canadian Girl from the awesome podcast Nothing Ever Happens in Canada. I cannot tell you all how much I appreciate your kindness and generosity. If you'd like to support the show, visit patreon.com slash fablecollective or the website for details. As always, thank you for listening. <laughs>